Welcome to our 48th episode. We took a break during the summer, and now we are back, and we're so excited to be in the studio again. We have a great guest today, Dr. Andrew Hahn, here to talk about the one-hour miracle, a five-step guide to self-healing. Who doesn't need that? (laughs) Um, This is a book about working through past trauma and how to change the narrative towards one of healing. Trauma as it relates to parenting and how to avoid passing it on to our children. This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers, a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parent's Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Well, welcome, Dr. Hahn. It's so good to have you here with us. Thanks, Jenna. Thank Thank you you for being on our show today. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I can't (laughs) share with people unless you invite me, so it works out well. (laughs) That's great. Well, we're ready to get started on these amazing questions. We have so much to ask you and can't wait to hear your answers. But um, let's start off with, would you tell us a little bit about your background, Dr. Hahn, and how you got into the field of psychiatry and healing? Well, yeah, I'm a psychologist. And the way I got into, I have a doctorate in clinical psychology. And uh, so how I got into it was I've always loved people and I've always wanted to understand everything and you put the two together. And I thought it was an unbelievably creative way to be in the world because you'd be sitting with one person, even though I didn't want to just affect one person at a time. But there's something about the extraordinary thing about just being present with someone and saying, what I have is everything I can bring to the situation in the service of healing and evolving. And there was something that was so appealing about that. Um, and I've always been the kind of person that, you know, people would know me and say, how do you know me so well? Like, you know me kind of better than my best friend and you know me only for a few hours. And it's just, mm-hmm. that's, I just love people. So that's how I got into the field of psychology. How I got into this part of the field is very, very different because what I learned in graduate school is a foundation for what I do. But it's, if you had told me I'd be doing what I was doing now, when I was in graduate school, as I say at the end of the book, I would have said, yes, and pigs fly to the moon, except now I believe pigs do fly to the moon, but I think anything is possible. So, but that's been my life experience. So along with your collaborator, uh, collaborator, Joan Beckett, you guys have put out a new book and it's called The One Hour Miracle. So could you tell us a little more about that? What, what exactly is The One Hour Miracle? Well, from my point of view, a miracle there's like a, the biblical idea of a miracle, which I have experienced things that are literally miracle. But I would say that anytime you become a little bit freer from suffering and a little bit freer to live a life in alignment with your soul and a little bit more self-accepting, it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes the miracles look really miraculous, like people who've had chronic pain, and nothing has touched it, and they've had it for seven years, and it goes away in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just like you're not so uh, 
afraid to admit your your unworthiness, and it doesn't frighten you so much. And both of them are miracles, even though they look slight, sort of different on the surface. So. Yes, both represent such freedom, either yeah. through physical pain release or uh, the release of a negative cognition that is, you know, really right. held someone in bondage for years, right? Right. right. So, um, you know, a miracle really is when you can be truly self-accepting and free and be able to say yes to anything that comes your way, even if you don't like it, even if it's not your preference. And then free to live really what I would say is the life of soul, which is to say that on another level, each of us has a, we're sort of like cells and on the surface we're differentiated. And the question is, can we truly play our, lo- our role in the evolution of life and do our part and have nothing stop us? And ultimately, can we know that what we're on a spiritual level, what we're invited to do, I think, is to know that who we truly are is everything, and everything is who we are, and everyone is everything. So it's like, why would I ever do something to harm you? Because truly, to say, you know, it's like loving, you say, love your neighbor as yourself, except on one level, when you're really open to it, you'd say, my neighbor is myself. Mm. Because in the template, we're just one. I mean, if you think about it, right? If you think about cells, the holographic nature of cells, right? You'd say on the on the surface, we have 3 trillion human cells. Each of them is different and each is differentiated. But underneath it, each of them has to be the same. It's why you can take one cell and create, clone a replica called Dolly the Sheep. So everything in the whole universe is in that cell of that cell's universe. And the mystical idea, you know, whether you think about it in terms of uh, mystical biology or mystical, you know, the, the world of mystical romanticism or the world of mystery in, in every sacred tradition, you know, says that that's who we truly are, is that we are everything. And so it's like everything that ever happens or could happen or is happening is here right now. It doesn't travel. It's here right now, happening all simultaneously. That's why we call it life-centered therapy, because as soon as we move to that, we know that we're in relationship to life, and everyone is. But each of us is life. Mystically, each of us is life in the same way that each cell holds everything. So do we. All we have to do is not be afraid to be who we are and Trauma is just what makes us be afraid of who we are. So, and Dr. Hahn, how did, how did you create life-centered therapy? Because this does sound like a very, this sounds like a big spiritual jump probably from your foundation and psychology, and yet I can totally see how they interweave. Well, first of all, I wouldn't exactly say I created it. I'd say in some ways, I, I would say two things. I'd say first I was a vessel, and secondly I built on my ancestors, you know. So um, I had my foundation in sort of, I, I had a doctorate in clinical psych. I have a PsyD. So, you know, when I was in Philadelphia in the early 80s, you know, it was a hotbed of everything. I mean, there were two psychoanalytic institutes and unbelievably cutting-edge family systems therapy and narrative therapy, and we're just starting to learn about postmodern sort of physics and systems theory and Beck was there and 
you know, Erickson, Milton Erickson was there and Mnuchin was there and Whitaker was there. You probably don't know those people. Yeah, but all they're the like, fa- fathers of family therapy. I'm very familiar. Yeah, well, then, you know, and they mm-hmm. were all there. So I had I, I had a chance to sort of have all that background. And then I graduated and I got offered a job to be uh, an assistant professor in a, in a graduate program in back in my hometown. And I became the training director of a clinic and I was going along and doing that. And I was always kind of edgy. And then um, one day I talked about this in the book, I had this experience where I went and visited a friend and she had fallen the day before and it hurt herself terribly, really badly. I mean, like um, her ankle when I got there was extremely swollen and totally discolored and she was in awful pain, but she wanted to take me to, uh, she had gone on spiritual retreat and wanted to take me to the holy grounds of where that retreat was, which was, was in Encinitas, California. It's called the Self-Realization Fellowship. And so uh, she took me there and we did this beautiful heart chanting service for about an hour and a half. And then we start walking around the holy grounds in Encinitas. And we get to these two benches and she says, you're going to have to carry me out of here because I can't take another step. She'd been leaning on me, but she said the pain is just too bad. Um, so she's, I, I help her sit down on one of the benches. They're sort of parallel to each other. And then I have to kind of circumambulate the whole thing And I, because I wanted to be able to elevate her legs. So I had to sort of walk around where she was and walk through some bushes to get to where I was going to sit. And the second I sat down, I had her put her leg on my leg. And uh, the second I did that, uh, I was flooded with – the best way I could say it is if you – had the brightest sun you could ever imagine and sort of had it experienced it inside of you. That's what happened to me. And I knew it wasn't the sun because I knew where the sun was and it was off to the side. And I knew where this light was coming from, which was far much more overhead. And so I said to her, well, why don't you just give me your ankle? So she gave me her ankle and I just started experiencing the energy flowing through my hands to her ankle. At which point, um, after that was about five or 10 seconds, she said, you know, I can read auras, don't you? And I said to her, this is 1991, I said, Roshan, I'm a nice Jewish boy from Boston. What do I know from Mormons? Because <laughs> I didn't know that Roshan was an Indian mystic at the time. And she said, are you aware that there's pure light coming through the crown of your head into the center of your chest and out your hands to my ankle? And you also aware that where you sat was a kind of strange place to sit. It's called the seat of the healer. People just don't sit in that seat. And I said, <laughs> I can't see it the way you're talking about, but I know that it's true. And then we looked down, there was no swelling, there was no discoloration, and she got up and walked away with no pain. And I sort of said, we're not in Kansas anymore. And <laughs> then I spent two years like discovering everything I could discover about what happened. And I was always interested in um, sort of what are called psi phenomena, you know, mm-hmm. and I had had some psychic experiences and a lot of channeling experiences but nothing exactly like that experience so i went and studied healing through touch and mystery trainings and eastern mysteries and depth psychology and regression therapy and everything you can imagine and the enneagram very deeply Mm -hmm. i started studying the enneagram very deeply and then two years after that which was the end of that i didn't know it a woman came up to me who was an acquaintance and said you have to go see this woman she's doing miracles in new jersey And I said, I believe in miracles in New Jersey. And she told me a story. And the story she told me was this woman who was running a workshop, whose name was Judith, 
had a person come to the workshop who had such a bad case of asthma, she could barely walk up the stairs. She was wheezing so badly. And Judith did something called muscle testing, which I'd never heard of in 1991, or it's called Mm -hmm. kinesiology. Or in our field now, it's called ideomotive cueing. And it's just a way of accessing soul through your body, really what it is. And she started asking these questions, and she had the woman tell a story while the woman tapped all over her body, which I didn't understand what that was yet, because there's the world now that is really meridian-based therapies. But Judith was one of uh, Roger Callahan's first students, um, and had learned all about tapping as a way of clearing trauma. And so the story I was told is Judith gets done having this woman tell a story and tap, and then she says, your asthma's cleared. She muscle tested and said, your asthma's gone. It's cleared. So why don't you go and go outside and start walking and see if you feel different? And the woman starts to walk, I'm told, and then she starts to run, and she runs up and down the street. She comes back exhausted and exhilarated, and she said, I haven't been able to run a step in seven years. Wow. And I said, wow, too. That's what I said, too. I said, wow, I have to find out what Judith is doing. So I found out what Judith was doing. And Judith actually lived 10 miles from me in Massachusetts. And Judith had no background really in psychology or any of this stuff. She was a neurobiologist. She had a doctorate in neurobiology and then got interested in neurolinguistic programming. And from that, she became a master NLP practitioner. And then she found this this angel who's out on your part of the world, whose name is Mary Louise Muller, who is a craniosacral therapist. And Judith put together um, NLP, craniosacral therapy, and and a wonderful, very short protocol that Mary Louise had created, and then put together her tapping stuff, and then her own brilliant research on loss and violence traumas. And Judith, who knew nothing about psychology, just interviewed an awful lot of people and began to see that there was a common pattern. No matter what kind of violence you had, there were always the same underlying beliefs. And she wrote a great paper about this that everybody in the world should read. Mm -hmm. And that's what Judith knew. And Judith knew, and I knew all of this stuff about clinical psychology. And I had studied like every school you could possibly imagine. Plus, I had had all of these trainings and energy and regression therapies and depth psychology and archetypal psychology and spiritual psychology. And we became partners and we created something that she calls healing from the body level up. And we originally called guided self healing and Judith and my worldviews are very different. Judith is a medical doctor who believes sort of in fixing and cures. And I'm a soul psychologist who believes that the world is really about healing and healing is not necessarily about curing anything. It's about becoming whole and being able to accept who you are. So essentially, Judith and I went our separate ways. And But that was in 19, when I met her was 1993. And we sort of went our separate ways 25 years ago. And I've been training people in this ever since. And we've now trained well over a 1000 people. And we do the work remotely. So we see people all over the world. And that's how this came to be. Wow. It's an incredible journey you've been on. Yeah, it has been. But the the amazing thing about it is it's the simplest thing in the world. What we do, you can explain to a smart nine-year-old and they get it right away. And you can explain, you can explain to them why they come for therapy and what therapy is and how it works. And you can tell them in one minute and they say, that makes sense. Why did anybody ever tell me this before if they'd been in therapy? Right? So how do you explain it to a nine-year-old? Simple. I say, well, I would, depending on their language, if they're a smart nine-year-old, I'd say, hey, look, there's only one reason you're here. There's something that couldn't be handled. When you can't handle something, you suffer. That's it. 
And from then on, everything you're suffering about, every, every problem you have is, from your point of view, a problem. But from another point of view, it's a clue to help you remember what it was that couldn't be handled. That's it. That's why mm-hmm. people come to therapy. because, And that's what trauma is. Trauma simply is something that can't be handled. If you, Trauma is totally subjective. It has nothing to do, from my point of view, with an objective criteria, right? If you're Jesus and suddenly you're Christ and you can be crucified and you say, you're not doing anything to me because I don't even exist as a separate being, you're not going to be traumatized. But if you're somebody else and I look at you funny, you know, or if, or if you're a hemophiliac and I cut you slightly with a pin and you die, you're going to be traumatized. So mm-hmm. it's totally subjective and has to do with karma and resilience and a lot of other things. But that's not what I'd say to the nine-year-old. What I'd say to the nine-year-old is you're only here because there's something that couldn't be handled. And then you're stuck there, right? And if, you know, the nine-year-old was a certain nine-year-old, I'd say, look, if you were in my office and a motorcycle backfired and suddenly you were having a panic attack, which nine-year-olds understand, I'd say it's not because the motorcycle's backfiring. It's because you're reliving something. And the motorcycle, you say you could say you almost brought it to you in order to try to have another opportunity to master what couldn't be handled. That's it. And all therapy is, is mastering what can't be handled. And then I'm going to tell you something really funny, which is you're not having a panic attack at all. And I'll tell you what I mean. Whenever something can't be handled, in that moment, a sensation is born. And it's a living being just like you are. Just like, you know, you could say Jenna was born in a moment. It was born in a moment. So if I said you're having a panic attack and I say, what's happening in your body? And you say, my heart's pounding fast. I'd say something funny to you. I'd say, you're not having a panic attack. Someone whose name is heart pounding fast is having a panic attack. And it's not my heart pounding fast any more than you're my Jenna or you're my Kristen. Its name is heart pounding fast. And it's having a panic attack. But you've lost the ability to remember that. So you unconsciously identify and you believe you are heart pounding fast, but you're not. Heart pounding fast is just an experience, and it can't be you because your little toe is feeling fine. So it's its own living being. And what you're going to do is you're going to choose to become heart pounding fast from the inside out. And then you're going to say whatever comes to you. And if you're kinesthetic, which I wouldn't say, I mean, if you're someone who senses things, you might actually live it out like you're a character in a play. And if you're visual, you'll see something like you're watching a movie. And if you're auditory, it'll be like reading a novel. And they have come to share a story, and all you're going to do is report. And the key is, the second you choose to become heart-pounding fast, you no longer unconsciously identify with heart-pounding fast. You consciously identify with the one who's choosing to be heart-pounding fast in the same way that an actor would choose to become a role in the play and fully enroll themselves. But they would know at the end of that scene that that's not who they are. That was just something they were experiencing. And it's the same with everything. So you become heart pounding fast and suddenly you say, I'm here with you and I'm bearing witness to you and I'm holding you and I'm going to give you what you didn't get in the first place, which is someone who just says yes to you without judgment, without comparing you to anybody else, without feeling compulsive, like I have to fix you. I'm just going to be here with you. And the second that happens heart pounding fast heals and it goes back into its pure form and then an amazing thing happens which is it just goes away it goes from being 
m as an equals mc squared because when you have when there's trauma the world becomes dense it goes from being what it truly is which is energy and waves to particles and matter and particles and matter and energies and waves the only difference between them is one is an illusion based in trauma and one is a pure form of something and the second you're with something and say i'm just with you it goes back into its pure form and then miraculously heart pounding fast goes away. And if the only reason you were having a panic attacks was that you were identified with some soldier in Afghanistan, you know, 17 years ago and bombs are going off and they couldn't handle it. So of course, when the motorcycle backfires, they're that soldier, right? The second they choose to be that soldier whose name is heart pounding fast, then it goes away. And the next time the motorcycle backfires, they say, oh, I'm remembering something that happened to me that I didn't like. But it's not unconsciously someone I'm identifying with. It's just an experience I am remembering that got dismembered, it got split off, and I unconsciously identified with it. And now I don't do that anymore. And I will tell you, if you know that and you have any witness function whatsoever, you can go into the most heinous trauma the first minute you see somebody. And as long as they can choose to become the body sensation, they don't need any kind of titration or resource or anything. The whole resource is to say, it's an experience that's being had. It's not who I am. And all you have to do to do that is choose to be it. And you just have to find out where it originated because everything after that is going to be an echo. And if they need something other than just sharing their story, you have to find out what they need if just sharing their story isn't enough. And if you do those three things, if you find out what they're, what, who they really are and where they started and what they need, they will go back into their pure form. And any symptoms you have, one of two things will happen. The symptoms will just go away or your relationship to them will change to such degree that you won't have any anxiety or judgmentalism or comparison anymore, at which point you don't have a problem because you're free. And that's what we do. And then it's just a question of finding what the real problem is and not a symptom. And that's Mm -hmm. what I do. So, so much of your work is around um, the legacy of trauma and how it gets passed on from one generation to another. Can you speak a little bit about how parents' trauma might impact their children? Sure. Um, speak a lot about how that happens. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you a story. The way that it most impacts is if there's something a parent can't handle, right? their child will be very happy to take it on for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, then their parents will attack in the child what they couldn't accept in themselves. And children want their parents to be able to care for them. And if it means they have to sacrifice themselves, they'll do it. And uh, so one way that it affects their kids is the kids become a projection that they identify with that their parents then attack, which is sort of nightmarish. But if the parents then could heal their own trauma, suddenly their child would be very different. Right. Or let's say the parent does something and the child can't handle it. Like we have one story in the book, which I like telling the story of a, of a man named Nate. And, you know, he comes for therapy and he's in a major depression. Right. 
And we found out his major depression started in this lifetime when he was four years old and it's something to do with his father. And so, um, and his depression we found out actually was something that came out of um, an incident that happened with his father and, uh, and it was a protection from something worse which Nate thought was a very strange idea that his major depression was not the problem, but a way of protecting himself from something worse than a major depression. So what I said is, all right, we're going to find the protector who's called major depression, and we're going to ask it when it came in to protect you and to serve you. And so I said, well, when you really allow major depression, what do you feel in your body? And he said, I feel heavy, wet oatmeal. And I'd say, okay. We know heavy wet oatmeal was born when you were four, about four years old, and it had something to do with your father. I could find all that out. I can determine that. So he goes into heavy wet oatmeal, and he says, oh, my gosh, and he starts having a very vivid memory that he had had some sense of. And he knew his father was having difficulties, but it was only vague to him. And he very vividly remembered a scene, and the scene was that it was Christmas time, and he had given his father, he had made his father a very special gift down in there in the basement, and... He, his father comes downstairs and he gives his father, he says to his father, I have this gift for you. And his father does not only not receive the gift, the father pushes him away. And he goes upstairs. I can remember the session, actually. I'm getting kind of goosebumps. And he says, um, you know, Daddy, take my gift. And Daddy did not only not take the gift, Daddy walks out the door, gets into a car and drives away. It's a fairly extreme story, but, you know, you can have much subtler stories. And at that point, Nate remembers standing there and saying, I don't care because the pain of that much excruciating sense of abandonment rejection was too much. So he's now had this major depression that everyone thinks is biological and it happened the year before at the same time. And I said to him, not only does it appear not to be biological according you know, to what I'm finding through the muscle testing that I do with you, but that it's, it's just this one crystallizing story. And so we go back and we find that story, which happened when he was four. And I said, okay, here's the problem. The problem is that for some reason, a few months ago, you made the same choice you did when you were four years old to say, I don't care about something. And it turned into a major depression because I don't care is a way not to feel anything. So I said, all right, we're going to like have you give loving energy to that four-year-old who's choosing to numb himself. And we have a way of doing that that's actually very simple to describe, but we don't have a lot of time. So he does that, and it just dissolves the whole thing. And I said, find who you were underneath all that. And he says, I see this little boy with golden hair with like a halo who's dancing around. And I said, well, why don't you just put your hand on your body and invite him to come out and touch your hand and expand forward and back and left and right and up and down until you are that boy who has that you know childlike sense of wonder but has also learned everything he's learned over the last 18 years. And he does that, and he says wow, I feel wonderful. He says, so how come I got depressed? Everyone thinks it's biological and I'm not eating and I'm not caring about anything. I said, I don't know. Why don't you just recreate heavy wet oatmeal and find out what happened in December? He says, oh my gosh, I know what happened. Never occurred to me. He said, I invited my father to come to, a, he was a, the head of an improv group in his freshman year of college. And his father, who had gotten remarried, said, I'm sorry, Nate. Nate lets me use his name. He said, I'm sorry, Nate. But I can't go because I'm remarried. I have these two toddlers, so I'm sorry I can't go. 
And Nate says, no problem, Dad, I don't care. And the ne- he didn't oh. know that that was the catalyst. The next day he goes into right. a major depression that had been lasting for about three months and had not been abating until he saw me, at which point. So he said, okay, smarty pants. Who's a- actually said that. What happened the year before my father went to my play? I said, I don't know. We create heavy wet oatmeal and ask it. He reached and he says, oh my gosh, I know exactly what happened. He said, it never occurred to me. He said, I can see myself and I had made a, it was all the same time of year. They thought it was like, you know, a biological anniversary reaction. He says, oh my gosh, I'm making a special present for my girlfriend. And I give her the present and I see subliminally that she has this fake smile on her face and I know she doesn't want the gift. And I'm saying to myself, I hadn't even realized that I don't care. And he, he did that and he went into a major depression the next day, which everyone said there was no precipitance for, but of course there was. You just have to know how to find them. And he went into a major depression that lasted for four months. Wow. And then he said, well... Okay, I understand all that now. And then his mother's in the next room, and he says, I'm starving. He goes out and eats a double cheeseburger, and his depression went away. Now, I'm not saying all depression goes away in one second, but his did, and it didn't come back. It was gone. So that's a way that parents can affect their kids, if you ask. I mean, I have hundreds of stories because parents unintentionally traumatize their kids all the time because they can't handle something. They can't really be present with their children. Mm-hmm. You know, and if That's you're not so really true. present with your children, either because of your own trauma or because of your own limitation, we we're talking about the Enneagram, which I could tell you some amazing stories about how that works out when you think your children, when you don't realize your children have their own personalities, and their own identity. And you say, well, they're supposed to, what's, what's going on with them? They're nuts. And they're not nuts. <laughs> they just have a whole different worldview. And we have a great story in our book about how that affects kids. Um, and if you want, I can tell you that story because it was really amazing. And it's a story, just briefly, that my um, my co-author, it's in the book, it's called Blueberry Pancakes. And Joni, if you guys know the Enneagram, Joni is an eight. And an okay. eight's called a protector. Well, uh, some people call it the challenger. We would call it the protector. Um, but other people call it other things. But it's someone who basically says, I care about the truth and I care about competency and I care about justice and uh, that's what I really care about. And I care about being responsible. And of course, I care about mostly protecting my children. So she has a daughter. Um, and when her daughter, her, it's her daughter's birthday, and her daughter is, I think, seven or something, and Joni's just learned the Enneagram. And Joni makes her daughter her favorite dish, which is blueberry pancakes. And the daughter, who's a heart point, who's someone who says, I want you know, I want appreciation and I want approval. She was actually a four. Um, she was a romantic and she wanted to be special. And uh, so she says, mommy, the pancakes are so good. And Joni's cleaning up the pancakes and she sees they've all been thrown out into the trash. And Joni, who's into truth, is about to scream at her daughter saying, like, why'd you lie to me? And then she says, oh, I got it. She said, we have different personalities, you and I. He said, I bet you were trying to not hurt my feelings. So, of course, you wanted to not tell me what was going on, so you didn't want to hurt my feelings. So you threw them all out, but you didn't tell me. And her daughter starts to cry and says, Yeah, mommy, I didn't want you to feel bad, and I just didn't want to tell you that they weren't cooked well enough. And Joni says, Sweetheart, I really get it. But I want you to know, in my world, like, 
I just wanted, you know, if you had been able to tell me the truth, what I wanted you to have was what you wanted. And I wouldn't have been bothered by it at all, but I know we're kind of different. And that one moment, I would say, Joni's an amazing mother anyway, but that one moment when she realized that she was a protector and her daughter was a romantic and she could step into her daughter's worldview entirely from the inside out made really quite an extraordinary relationship multiplied more extraordinary. Oh, I bet. I mean, that's amazing empathy, Mm -hmm. you know, for her to really understand her daughter's perspective and put her own perspective aside to create space for her daughter. Mm -hmm. Well, um, what I would say to you is uh, Joan is a remarkable being and, you know, but she she had literally just learned the Enneagram. And, but that would have been not the easiest thing to come up with. But the second she said, oh, my gosh. I, so I know you guys have been interested in the Enneagram stuff. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you an Enneagram we've, story about that. <laughs> yeah, we've thought about having a, a, a class for parents to really understand their children on the within the Enneagram. That would yeah. be really effective. Uh, Some... Yes, and I will tell you who you want to teach that class. Okay. <laughs> I'm biased. You want Joni to teach you. Okay. So with your practice, you clearly have seen how um, childhood depression can be a response to parental actions. Can you advise our listeners on how to break the pattern of experience? Yeah. Whenever you're reactive to your children, that's a statement about you, not them. Mm. Find out your reactivity. Bring all your attention to the sensation that's there and let it share what it's come to share with you. And then you won't project it out onto your kids or let it get in the way. The very best thing parents can do for their kids is to handle their own trauma. That's the very best thing. Oh, so true. Okay, the second very best thing is they could learn the Enneagram. I mean, I'm biased. There are other systems, but I think it's such an elegant one. It's so simple and powerful. So that when nothing gets in the way, you could say, I could really step into my child's point of view. And it happens all the time. I mean, it's like, I'll give you another example. I mean, you know, I'll give you a school example, right? I mean, this is like so classic because we're talking about what points you guys are in threes and twos and nines, twos and nines. A lot of twos and nines are teachers. So you get a, you get a child, I mean, they're mediators or they're, they're givers, right? A lot of women who are mediators and givers end up being elementary school teachers. Okay. They have a, what's called a count. They have a phobic um, loyal skeptic, a six in their class who lives in fear, but who wants to like make themselves unchallenging by becoming warm. But really their warmth is a way of saying, please stay away from me. I'm not dangerous. So leave me alone. But of course the nine or two teacher, the giver, the mediator will say, oh, this child's warm. They want me to come closer. And then what happens is the child freezes and no one knows what the heck's going on. Why? Because it never occurred to them that really that was their way of binding the fear that they had that someone was going to harm them by getting too close to them. So they say, well, the child was warm. They wanted to get it closer. But no, that's you don't know what a behavior means until you say, Really, what is it like for you? Where is your attention going and what's motivating you? So if you want to be a parent and you really want to know what's going on, you'd always be being curious and saying, 
everything my child is doing makes sense. My job is to try to help them and help me make sense of it as opposed to reacting and judging it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the North Star because if you get there, if you could handle all your trauma, you wouldn't do it to your kids. And if you could handle the way you saw the world and the fear that was underneath it, right? If Joni could handle her fear in that blueberry pancake story of like, feeling like she'd been taken advantage of and was going to be weak if she didn't say anything. But if she could be with her own sense of, I'm not afraid to be weak so I can be soft, right? Then she doesn't have to be hard on her kid because it's okay to be soft. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean her kid's taking advantage of her because she did her work, right? Mm-hmm. And then, like, so I would say if you want to do one thing as a parent, and it's really hard being a parent, you know, so it let's really be honest is. about it, yes. you know, <laughs> but, you know, if you really could take the time to say everything my child is doing makes sense, all we have to do is understand the sense it makes. Nothing yeah. is crazy. And probably everything they're doing makes some sense in the context of what's going on with me as their parent, because that child is in a one down relationship to me in terms of power. So I have to understand it both in terms of love and in terms of power. And how am I affecting them because I have more power than they do. Mm-hmm. So if you could be with that and then you could handle your own trauma, then you could really be there and say, you know, I'm going to accept you as you are. And you don't have to be any different than you are. And I'll just be here with you. And if you need my suggestions, we'll know, and then I can suggest something to you. But I'm not here to fix you. I'm Dr. only here Hahn, to be with you. Yeah. I mean, how would you speak to parents though that are not aware that they are holding trauma, hmm. and and then also, you know, we have little T, we have big T trauma. How do how do you speak into that as well for people? Because I think sometimes people compare their traumas to others and go, well, I really don't have mm-hmm. any kind of trauma. And so then they're denying the fact that they're actually living very unconsciously. And they have a whole lot of trauma, but everybody's bandwidth for mm-hmm. trauma or chronic experience layered over chronic experience starts to also inform how they see the world. Uh, what I would say is, if you if I were talking to parents, I'd say anytime you're reactive or judgmental or comparative or compulsive or anything, there's a trauma there. Mm-hmm. There's something that couldn't be handled. So you don't have to call it trauma. You can just say there's something I can't handle. Why would I want to like be screaming at my kid and, and judging them? Why would I want to compare them to another child? Why would I want to do any of those things? My job is to really say, I'm here with you. And it's a one-way relationship. I want you to know, I really believe that my job is to say, I'm here to know you. You don't have to do anything for me to know me or take care of me. You may have to do things because that's part of the deal, but not in order to take care of me. That's not your job. It's not Nate's job to take care of his father when his father can't handle the fact that he gives him a gift, right? It's the father's job to say, why am I getting so reactive that I can't accept my gifts of my child and I'm walking out on him? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'd say to every parent. I'd say, whenever you're getting reactive or whenever you can't accept your child, 
And it's not, your child does not have to accept you. They have to respect you, but they don't have to accept you. That's not their job. That was your parents' job. And if you don't know how to do it, I can teach you how to repair it yourself. But if you think your children are supposed to take care of you, you're going to get into big trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I'd say in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm that's saying really it's, a good. Tough, it's tough. It's really hard. Yeah. Because yeah. we have Very our well children said. in order to heal our own traumas. We just don't know it. I mean, next to our spouses or, you know, our significant others who we certainly get involved with in order to heal our traumas. You know, we think we get involved with them because we love them, which is true, but it's not, and we recognize them on all kinds of levels. And one is we're trying to learn from each other. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing with our kids. They pick us so they can learn too. You know, it's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank so you. So informative. So much, Dr. Hahn, for, for joining us on the show today. You've given us personally, I think, a lot to think about. Yeah. <laughs> very inspired. Very inspirational. Well, thank you. It was lovely. Yeah. Share with us a little more, too, on if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they find you? It's simple. Um, I answer my own emails, so they can write me at a h a h n a han at lifecenteredtherapy.com. So it's A, like an Andy, Han, H-A-H-N, at lifecenteredtherapy.com. And of course, our website is lifecenteredtherapy.com. And they can find all about our work and they can find out about our courses. And, you know, if they want to read about this, if you could buy, you know, if you want to buy our book, you can buy it, you know, a little, you know, paperback copy of it, which is well done, or a Kindle or audio. And if you do buy it from Amazon, obviously, if you would give us a review, even if you don't like it, <laughs> we'll take anything. Um, but that's, you know, that's how you get in touch with us. And, uh, Dr. Han's book is called the one hour miracle and you can find that on Amazon or local bookstores. Dr. Han, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for sharing the one hour miracle with us. It's, um, it's so evident that you are so passionate about, about empowering people towards self-healing and we at Mainspring are as well. So we're really happy to to meet you. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure, and I'd love to you know keep our conversation going because, like, I'd love to hear you guys too. It's like we can learn from each other. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, let's just acknowledge that Dr. Han might be one of the smartest men we've ever had on oh this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I'm still digesting everything. It was just. I could talk to him for hours. That was absolutely fascinating, and it resonated on so many different levels. Um, I, I'm just, yeah, it was really, really powerful. I've loved how he has combined his psychology background along with the Enneagram, mm-hmm. along with all these other trainings and healing and energy, mm-hmm. and then his collaborations. I mean, he just sounds like he's offering such a, a powerful therapy uh, program for people um, that choose to embark upon it. Yeah. And I mean, even though it was so multi-layered, it, it was also very tangible and uh, easy to understand and really, truly simple mm-hmm. at the core. Um, so I'm, yeah, I, we definitely need to have him back. There's so much to talk about. Love to dive in deeper into the Enneagram work. Um, and how it relates back to the self-healing, self-awareness. And, you know, something that we should share, too, is that 
he actually does work with children. Yes. And um, the work is very quick um, because it's about telling stories yes. and helping children to heal through the power of story. Yeah. So um, we didn't actually get to share some of those things that he was saying uh, offline, but yeah, um, definitely seek him out if you're if you're looking for a resource like that. Yeah, and definitely uh, think about buying his book because it's just it's really a helpful tool for anybody and everybody. Um, so as always, find us online at mainspringfamilywellness.com and please follow us on Instagram at mainspringfamily. And if you enjoy this episode, please share with a friend who might find it relevant. And you can always connect with us either via email at info at mainspringfamilywellness.com or DM us on Instagram. Thank you again, Dan Ballard, our sound engineer, Connor, at Gold Pacific Studios, and our producer, Cindy Murray. We so appreciate you so much. It's great to be back for this season. Have a great time. And like we always say, it takes a village, and we love our village. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you.